Well, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I've been longing to say that and then watch you do it. I've been saying that, you've been doing it, but I haven't been able to to see you. Philippians chapter 2, we're looking at verses 1 through 4. I don't think that there's any coincidence that we have come upon this passage for our first Sunday back. The first time that we're together in two months, the Lord brings us a passage that emphasizes the union of His church and calls us to to rejoice in that. The book of Philippians is a book about joy that, that fills our our lungs with gospel air. There's, there's no place that the gospel can be seen more clearly than in a unified church. I have missed church, haven't you? I mean, I've enjoyed the Word and I've kept up on preaching and studying and we've been Zooming and doing all these other things. But, but to look at another human being in the same room is a, is a wonderful thing to see all of God's people, or the ones that are gathered this morning, is a, is, a great, is a great thing. We need the church. We need to gather together. Was it easier to maintain your heart, not being able to, to come together, or, or harder? Did you find the slimy slide into complacency more or less likely? How's your prayer life been? How's your Bible reading? Your, your serving of, of others? I could go on. My point is we need... The church, a church unified around the right things, maintaining unity in the right way, which is what God is going to help us uh, see today. Now, we've just plunged into chapter 2, which, which continues Paul's Christ-like exhortations that he started back in verse 27 of, of, of chapter 1. And I apologized in the earlier service for the, uh, the color of the font. It might be more difficult than normal uh, to see. But we've seen Paul's gracious greetings, how he greets the church in verses 1 and 2. We've seen his thankful prayer. He taught us how to pray with thankful hearts. Then he described his challenging circumstances. And now, after doing all of that, he gives us some Christ-like exhortations. That begins in verse 27 of chapter 1 and just rolls right into into chapter 2. Paul has called us to live a gospel-worthy life life outside of the church at the end of of chapter 1. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's how he begins in verse 27. It's outside the church. He talks about the way we live our lives in front of unbelievers. Now, in chapter 2, he's calling us to that same kind of life inside the church. He calls us to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. As we said, the church at Philippi has no doctrinal issues. There's no doctrinal correction in, in, in any of this book. There's no moral decay like in, like in uh, Corinth. There are no false teachers to be corrected like, like in Ephesus. But it does have a small and yet noxious weed growing in the corner of its garden, and Paul doesn't want that to, to spread. It's the, the dandelion of division, if you, wanna, you want an illustration. And in chapter 4, Paul addresses that specifically. Chapter 4, verse 2, he calls out by name two women in the church. How would you like it 
if on Sunday morning I knew you were fussing and feuding with one another and I just called you out by name and say, hey, get along. That's basically what Paul does. That, that wouldn't be too, too pleasant. So obviously we know this has been going on for a while because the Apostle Paul doesn't make it a habit of just naming people, especially in scripturating people's names in the Bible for, for all of uh, the church history to, to remember. This is a serious issue that he's dealing with. And in our passage, before he ever gets to naming them in chapter 4, he gives us an instruction manual on how to keep these weeds out of our congregational garden. In our passage, in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, it actually has three parts, it's, and it's purposely ordered. Verse 1 is the motivations for unity, or the why. Why strive for, for unity? Paul gave us those motivations the last time we were, we were together. All that God has done for us in Christ is our motive for unity, while we aim at that. The verse we'll cover today, verse 2, is the definition of unity, or what it looks like. And then, the method to pursue unity. We won't cover that today, but it's in verses 3 and 4. It's the how of unity. So, so we were motivated to do that. Here's what it looks like. So how do you do that? Well, we'll get there. MacArthur called these four verses the formula for spiritual unity in the, in the church, the motivations, the marks, and the, and the means. And when we're done, we'll have a step-by-step diagram of what Paul meant by standing firm in, in one spirit. And I'll tell you ahead of time, it may not be what, what you're thinking, because I know unity is a topic that people talk about all of the time. You've probably heard sermons on that before. You probably know very well that you've been called to unity as a church. But as I was studying, I found myself asking the question, okay, that's what you're saying, Paul. That's what the little headline or heading in my study Bible says, unity through humility. What is unity? I mean, what does that really mean? How do I, how do I put some meat on, on those bones? You probably know you're commanded to promote it. You probably know that that you're never to contribute to disunity. But before you seek it, you have to understand exactly what it means. Is unity the idea that no one has differing opinions in the church or never disagrees? No, that's not what I mean. Is it holding hands and singing campfire songs? Is that what unity is? Unity is a favorite topic of, of, of liberal churches, and that's what they mean by unity. No convictions, just go along to, to get along. Sometimes the topic's even misused by doctrinally sound churches to, to squelch any type of questions or dissent from, from, from members. Don't ask any questions. Don't disagree with the elders because you're going to disrupt the unity. You probably have heard that before. It's surely not what the Bible means either. And while the gospelist churches promote hollow unity and heavy-handed leaders love to use it as a club, it is true that some Christians trample real unity too often. Shamefully, some Christians are known for not getting along, right? I mean, some entire churches or denominations, they're the fussing few or the battling Baptists, as they're called at times. I mean, contending for the faith doesn't mean turning the church into the okay corral rather than Christ's crown. That's not contending for the faith. That's contradicting the, the faith. That's not what we're aiming at either. What we want to know, as we've come upon this passage in our exposition Verse by verse, what we want to notice how does God define biblical unity and, and what, what is it exactly? 
And that's exactly what we have in Philippians 2, verse 2. Paul spells out biblical unity very clearly by using four statements here. They're, they're slightly different, and he does that to help us define it. They're like four windows looking into the same room. They're, they're like four links in the, in the same chain tied to the same tow bar. They all go together, and you'll find as you read them, without thinking, okay, what exactly does that mean? It almost sounds redundant. They, they overlap, and that's on purpose. But when you put them all together, you have a biblical picture of what it looks like to be in unity in a church. I mean, the outline couldn't be any more straightforward. I didn't struggle with that at all, you know, this week. There are four characteristics listed here, four characteristics of, that define biblical unity. And while the outline is straightforward, when you put them all together, the whole message is, is profound. Four characteristics that define Christian unity. A unified church has one mind. It's a church that has one love, a church that has one spirit, a church that has one purpose. That, that's the kind of church that is motivated by the cross and it does great things for God. Let's look at the first one that Paul gives us here. The first characteristic of Christian unity is when a church has one mind one mind. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, in verse 2, Paul says. He begins with the motivations in verse 1 that, that we looked at. He defines what we're aiming at now. You're motivated by, by the gospel, what Christ has done for you. What are you motivated to do? And now, now he describes for us what we're motivated to do. Three phrases that give us four characteristics of, of unity. The command is to make my joy complete. That's, that's the imperative. Fill up my joy. You bring me joy, Paul says, as a church. Now, complete it. Fill it up, overflowing. How do you do that? Here's how you do that in verse, in verse 2. And you can only accomplish that when you're motivated by what Christ has, has done for us. I mean, everything listed here in verse 2 is a, is a love response of what the Lord has done for you outlined in, in verse 1. Look, if you would, back at verse 1. Because, or therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation in love, any fellowship of the Spirit, any, if any infection, uh, affection and compassion. Because of those things. He lists those things up front. These are your motivations. And if you're motivated by what Christ has, has done, then you strive for what he describes in verse 2. And because every believer has experienced those things in verse 1, then every believer can be exhorted to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on, on one purpose. I mean, you have extraordinary motivations to, to seek unity in the church, biblical unity, not conformity, but unity. How can we gather together to celebrate all that the Lord has done for us, and then not give him what is most precious in his sight. Unity in his church, care for his church. Well, you can't. And that unity is present, Paul says, when we have one mind. That's the first thing he lists here, one mind. The phrase contains the word to think. The Bible's full of thinking. You're to love God, not only with what you do or the way you live, but with the way you think. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with your mind. 
You remember telling students um, that when you're studying, oh, I don't, I hate doing math, I don't like to study. You're, you're worshiping God when you do that. When you learn Greek and Hebrew or when you study the Bible, it's hard, but you're worshiping God. You're, you're loving God with all of your mind. And here Paul uses a word for, for mind. It's one of Paul's favorite words in Philippians. It's actually used ten times in the book. It's because he wants them to get it. He, he wants them to possess whatever this word means, to be, to be one-minded. It's the same word that he uses in 4.2 when he, when he calls out the two women and, and names them. He says, be in harmony, be of the same mind. And Paul is not calling them to have the same thoughts or feelings about every detail of life, as if he wants us all to be ditto marks of each other, as, as one writer said it. Again, it's unity, it's not conformity. The idea is to seek the same goal with a, with a like mind. Paul's not prohibiting personal diversity, like we all must enjoy the same foods and same hobbies and, and same styles. I mean, it's okay if you like the Yankees and somebody else likes the, the Red Sox. You can still be Christians. You can still be in the, in, the same, in the same church. You don't have to have the same styles of music. You don't have to like the same Bible versions. You can be a vegetarian or love bacon. You can enjoy stylish things or, or be a Carhartt man. Those, those are not the things that Paul is talking about here. The, those those, those trivial level, which things, or even things that may matter deeply. You. He's not saying everybody agree about that. Being of one mind, the idea is to have your overall thinking set to the same calibrating source. Your directional compass, all of your directional compasses point to the same north. If, if you pull out the compass of your, of your thinking, of your heart, and, an, and a t- another Timberlaker pulls out theirs, they're all pointing to, to the same north. Just like a magnet draws in pieces of steel that are, that, that are shaped in different ways and different sizes, but the magnet pulls them all to the, to the same place. That one place that it pulls us is the, is the one mind that Paul is talking about here. The settled disposition of an entire person is for Christ. The, the dominant attitude of your, of your heart is for the church. The consistent pursuit of your life is for the gospel. You're together on that. You differ on other things, but you're together on those things. It's the same. Paul says, now think about this. Paul says, you can't think the same way about everything outside the church, but you can think the same way inside the church. Because inside the church, you have the same calibrating focus. You have the same trajectory. If you try to find unity in, in likes or opinions or anything else, you're, you're not going to have biblical unity in the church. You may have unity with a subgroup. You'll find people that you'll, that, you'll, that you'll have camaraderie with, but you won't have biblical unity. Biblical unity flies at a much higher altitude than culture or background or personal perspectives. Its roots go a lot deeper than that. The kind of unity Paul's talking about here can't be manufactured by a program or or produced by anything else. Church unity comes when everybody is motivated by the same thing, the things that Paul's just done mentioning. When you as an individual have set your mind on the encouragement 
of Christ's work, the comfort or consolation of His love, the fellowship and affection of the Spirit's ministry. When your mind is trafficking in those types of thoughts, then you will be unified even when someone is very different from you or has a different, a different perspective. When it's that way, you'll be thinking the same as others, and you'll experience the blessing of, of unity. And when you don't, you won't. Because there are too many other things that are out there. Plenty of them are good. And the only way to have that is to have the mind of Christ. How do you have that? Then you think that way. You have the mind of Christ. Look at you at verse 5. We're not going to cover this verse, but, but Paul goes there. Have this attitude in yourselves. Have this mind in yourselves. It's the mind of Christ. Notice it's plural. It's the same word. Have this mind of your, in yourselves, in the church. What mind, Paul? The mind or the attitude, which was also in Christ Jesus. As long as you have your own mind, meaning your own perspective or your own way of thinking, you'll never accomplish what Paul's calling for here. There's only two attitudes. There's only two minds. I mean, they could be set on all kinds of different things, but there's only, there's only two in the, in the Bible. One that's set on heavenly things and one that's set on the things of the earth. Philippians 3.19. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul says that they're contrary to one another. They, they conflict. They they contrast, for the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit, notice it's set on the Spirit, is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. These two things don't blend together. They're like oil and water. For it doesn't subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. The mind of the flesh thinks more highly of yourself than, than you should. It's focused on the things of the earth rather than on eternity. It, it traffics in things like my rights and, and my agenda and, and my feelings. And look, I get it. I have all those things. I mean, my rights pop up in my heart. My agenda is what I am about. I have to subordinate all of those things on a regular basis. The mind of the flesh is not concerned about truth. And it really can't even handle too much of the truth. 1 Corinthians 3 says... Paul couldn't even speak deep things because the Corinthians were carnal. And I, brother could not, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. For you're not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able to do so, for you're still fleshy, you're carnal. The mind set on the flesh can't even receive the things of, of God. But the mind of the Spirit is humble. It prefers others and thinks of them first or more important. It, it looks beyond earth and thinks, how will, how will this impact heaven? In, in light of eternity, does this really matter is a question that, that you'll find in the, the mind of the Spirit. The mind of the Spirit traffics in others and in Christ's agenda, Christ's feelings. It submits to the Bible. It grows in discernment. It can, it's able to eat meat. And Paul shows us specifically what that kind of mind looks like. What does that thinking look like? He gives us, he actually gives you a tool later in Philippians 4. And when you start seeing this, this theme all through the book, laying the foundation here, calling out the women in chapter 4, and then even giving you this tool, you, everything starts to unfold a little bit better. 
Philippians 4.8 gives you a practical tool. It's like an electric fence tester that lights up when you're in the mind of the Spirit. You know this well. You probably memorized it. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think on these things. Evaluate your thoughts by these things. Are these things what I'm thinking right now? And that's your evaluation grid to see if your mind or your attitude is drifting toward the flesh. I mean, listen, almost no division is ever over doctrine or moral principle with with true Christians. I mean, people may differ on matters of of doctrine, but, but you don't have to divide. You may choose a different church. Division in the church is always related to personal attitude and selfish ambition. Either somebody got hurt or somebody wanting their way. And I've been there. The issue may start over doctrine, but when someone exalts self and won't walk in the Spirit, treats someone else without the kindness of Christ, or they're treated that way. You can see things differently and not devolve into division. It takes work. It's actually a labor of love, which is what Paul says next. If you would at verse 2 again. The second characteristic he gives of Christian unity is when a church has one one love. Verse 2 again. Make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining the the same love. Paul now defines what like-mindedness means. It means a labor of love, have the same love. It's, It's to love as Christ loved. To maintain the work of of love. Love is takes work, doesn't it? To the unifying work of the whole church is the love that Christ displayed by by taking the the nature of a servant. He serves us in love. For God so loved the world that that He served, He gave. It's a common commitment of all. It's the labor of love will, will unify a church. Now again... You have to define what does love mean. You have to define unity. You have to define what, what love means. Because its, it's worldly counterfeit has been greatly twisted. I mean, the world defines love based on two things. Your, your feeling, it's marked by feeling, and it's based on attraction. I'm attracted to you, therefore I feel things for you. I mean, those are the two words that I would, I would use to define worldly kind of of love. It's marked by feeling and it's based on, on attraction. MacArthur said, on a purely emotional level, having equal love for others is impossible because people are not equally attractive. Don't you find that? I mean, there's just certain people that you're attracted to. I mean, just even as a friend. And there are certain people that you have warm feelings about whenever you're around them. That's not biblical love. Aren't you glad God's love isn't feeling-based or morally, uh, or, how, or based on how morally attractive you are? I mean, the love of God is not based on how God feels every morning when He gets up. He gets up in the morning and, let me see, how do I feel today? Ah, I feel like loving my people today. Aren't you glad that, that God's love is not that way? It's anchored immovably in His eternal covenant. It's not based on how strong of a, of a character you have. That's not what drew God's love. God didn't look upon you and say, I am attracted to, to what is in you 
or I'm even attracted in what you'll become after I save you. That, that's not God's love. You would have no hope if God's love was based on being, Him being attracted to you. God's love is not the attractional kind. It's the love of the will. It's based on the choice of the lover to seek the welfare of its object. That's the kind of love that, that God has for, for you. He loved us by an act of His free choice because He determined to. And for no other reason or no other source. It's, and because biblical love is volitional, it can be commanded. And it's commanded of us here. Now, no doubt you've heard people say something like they've fallen out of love. Or I just don't love that person anymore. They say that as if that excuses them from keeping their covenant. I've heard that in pastoral counseling many times. I, I just don't love them anymore. Therefore, I don't want to stay with them. As, as if that's, that's an acceptable excuse. If you understand biblical love, that's not an excuse. That's actually a confession. <laughs> what they mean is I've lost emotion or attraction. And biblical love was never based on that. I'm sure it's hard for you to believe that Tracy's love for me is not based on how attractive I am or how I make her feel. It's based on committed, selfless love. And I'm not always very lovable. And yet she's committed to loving me anyway, just the same way God is to you, just the same way that God now commands you to do the same for your brothers and sisters, even when they're not very lovable. You're to maintain the same kind of selfless love toward one another in the body of Christ. And if you do, you will have unity, regardless of what you differ on. The intentional, conscious choice to seek the welfare of the church and your brothers and sisters here, the commitment to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, to prefer one another, honor one another, contribute to the needs of of one another, and practice hospitality. It's a Christ-like commitment. One of the things that was beautiful to see over the last two months, not being able to to gather, obviously there's lots of new things. You don't know how things are going to go. Just like this morning, you don't know how many are going to show up in the first service or the second service, and and you have people responding in many different ways, and you have to try to cut a path and apply principles that's there. We've never had a situation where the church has never gathered for, for, for two months. And when people, the people of Timberlake, couldn't express their worship in in some other way, when they couldn't express the worship by gathering together and singing together and hearing God's word together, they worshiped God in other ways, in the the ways that they could. They served one another. I mean, you had people showing up here with these teams, like, just amazing. And for the last two months, the giving of Timberlake Baptist Church has been two to $3,000 above budget every single week for eight weeks in a row. You realize that whenever we have a snow day, it typically drops five to $7,000? That's what they tell me. Usually you don't make that up because it's just a, you know, it's just a snow day. Well, the lights still have to come on. That wasn't because I got up here and preached messages about give, give, give or anything else. This was the, 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 the members of Timberlake. I even emphasized in the live stream of giving, this is not for anybody, other guests. This is for the, the committed membership of, uh, of Timberlake. And they responded in worship. It's a Christ-like commitment. You can even come here and you're committed in that way. Genuine love is not sentimental affection 
but sacrificial service, one writer said. I can't have the same emotions for everyone or be attractive to everyone in the same way, but I can sacrificially live for everyone in the same way and therefore have the same biblical love for everyone. 1 Corinthians 13 describes biblical love. You, you know it. You probably read it at your wedding. It's the work of patience. It's, the, it's kindness toward your sisters and brothers. It's genuinely being thankful for what others have, even if you don't have it. It's, it never thinks better if, if you have something yourself. It, it sees self as a lowly sinner. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable when you're irritated. It's not resentful when, when you've been done wrong. It rejoices in whatever God says, even when it says something about you. <laughs> Love carries things even when they're heavy. It believes, it has faith, God will do what He said in all things. It looks forward to, to when He will, will do it in hope. It, it endures all of that until He does. It's the work that you're called to do as an individual and as a church together. It's impossible apart from the Spirit, the mind of the Spirit. And it's a daily labor. It's a daily work. Charles Spurgeon said, Love is a matter of the heart. Heart and if the heart be not right with God, external acts, though they are very similar to the highest acts that flow from love, are no service. God requires the heart to be right. And if that be not right, whatever comes out of us is not acceptable in His sight. You can't do that. You can't have that kind of love in your flesh. Your flesh, my flesh, loves itself. Only the Spirit can love like that. So it's a quick gauge to tell you whether you're at, in the Spirit or in the flesh. Do you lack sacrifice for others? Are you too focused on yourself or your comforts? Then you're not walking in the Spirit. Let me give you the third one that Paul gives here. The third characteristic of Christian unity is when a church has one soul. Look at verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in, in spirit. United in spirit. It's only one word in the, in the original language. It literally is two words placed together in one. Soul's together. One said it's like being a soul brother. It's two souls united together, and they're so intertwined that, that they're, they're in harmony. It's one accord. The word means selfless harmony. It excludes personal ambition, selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, and all other evils. It's, it's different from the same love, where same love focuses more on a choice, a volition, a work. This emphasizes the affection part, the affectional part. It's my, it's my bosom friend, you ladies that like to watch Anne of Green Gables. You know what this word means. It's a it emphasizes affection. There's still a oneness around truth, but the word involves a, a passionate concern together for God, for, for His work, for His people. It motivates you to be one-souled and with others who long for the, for the same things. 
You ever heard a beautiful chorale? I mean, one of my favorite parts of going to the Shepherds Conference is when the Masters University comes over and they bring the, they bring the chorale and they sing. <clears throat> one of the highlights is listening to 3,000 men, most of them in ministry, singing the songs of the gospel, but, but the, the chorale is amazing. All a cappella in beautiful harmony. You listen closely and you can pick out the different parts, but they, but they all blend perfectly together, this, this wonderful music. They do that because they're all singing the same, off the same sheet. You've probably heard the opposite as well. You've probably listened to an orchestra and all of a sudden a violin comes in that's off key and it's like fingernails on a, on a chalkboard. Or maybe you're singing congregationally and all of a sudden I sing a little bit louder than everybody else and you hear me. You've heard it before. Paul says it's the same in the church. You and I are in the same ensemble playing the, the gospel song that we all love. And we have to practice and play together to make the church's music. And when we do that, we're, we're one soul. We'll do that if we sing the biblical chords to the biblical chords, keeping time with the same, same love. And when that doesn't happen in the church, it's like that violin that comes in off key. It just throws, the, throws everything off. <clears throat> Grieves the heart of God. And when believers play together and make this, this gospel music, it's, they move as one person. D.L. Moody's famous quote was, The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. By God's help, I aim to be that man. Uh, I remember reading that, just being so fired up about it. It still fires me up thinking, I want to give my life for that kind of aim. But Paul says Mr. Moody had the right heart, but, but too limited of a target. Paul says... It should be the world has yet to see what God could do with a church fully consecrated to Him. And we aim to be that church. That's what Paul's saying in verse 2. A church like that would be one soul. Two believers who truly realize that they're only slaves of the Lord don't allow differences to divide them or, or hinder them from their primary task of serving the Master. I always think of George Whitfield as an illustration of this principle in church history. Whitfield, as you know, was a, a, a great gospel preacher during the, the awakenings and the revivals that, that took place, and yet he originated in England with John Wesley. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, Whitfield, they were all together, and Whitfield came from England to America and began to, to preach. And when he returned back to England, there was a, a division that had taken place in, in the, the church that he was part of. There was a threat of division due to John Wesley. And Whitfield never allowed that to rise to a personal level or, or get in the way of the gospel work. When, when John Wesley changed his theology and decided to preach a message against Whitfield... Whitfield knew that it would divide thousands of believers in England, and that's what happened. Whitfield left, Wesley stayed, he got torqued up in 
theological issues and perfectionism and otherwise, and, and he believed that God wanted him to preach a message against what he once believed and what, what fit, Whitfield believed, and so he cast lots to decide whether to preach a message, and the, the lot landed on, on he would preach, and so Whitfield returns to this, knowing that it would divide... Wesley did it anyway, even though Whitfield begged him not to, and a schism formed between their followers. And after a significant attempt to overcome their differences, Whitfield recognized there was no possibility to bring, bring the, the sides back together as long as he remained in leadership. And, and so he gave up his position as the head of the group, paving the way for Wesley to, to prevail, for Wesley to triumph. Several tried to convince Whitfield to stay and saying he would, he would lose his fame if, and it would, would cause him to be forgotten by future generations. Wesley's going to be remembered, not you, and you started this movement, is what they said to him. And Whitfield's reply was one-souled. He said this, Let the name of Whitfield perish, but Christ be glorified. What is Calvin or Luther? Let Jesus be our all in all as long as he is preached. I care not who is uppermost. I know my place, even to be servant of all. I'm content to wait until judgment day for the clearing of my reputation. And after I'm dead, I desire no other epitaph than this. Here lies George Whitfield. What sort of man he was the great day will discover. Even after years, after the years of this event, when Wesley's ambition became very evident, publicly evident, when Whitfield was asked if he thought he would see Wesley in heaven, he replied, I fear not, for he will be so near the eternal throne and we at such a distance we shall hardly get a sight of him. You want a biblical example of this? Paul just gave us one in chapter 1. You remember Paul in prison? And he says that he was in prison for the progress of the gospel, unjustly accused. And what did Paul say? Some are preaching Christ to, to make it harder on him, and some are preaching Christ to, to encourage him. And Paul says, oh, it doesn't matter to me as long as Christ is preached. Are you that way? I wish I could say I was that way all of the time. When someone gets in the way, steps on your toes, doesn't give you the credit, do you, do you think it doesn't matter as long as the gospel was advanced? I'm one sold for the gospel. Or do you think about the way that it was done? Personal offense. No one ever recognizes how much you did. We're all tempted to think that way. And you'll never be united in spirit with others with those thoughts or have unity in the church. And it's a labor of love. It's work. Let me give you the final one. It's, it's characterized by one purpose. The fourth characteristic of Christian unity is when a church has one purpose. Look at verse 2 again. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, being one soul, united in spirit. And here's the last one, intent on one purpose. So my translation puts it. Yours may be different. But that's the idea. You're intent on one purpose. 
Paul holds up the, the diamond and turns it to, to a fourth facet and shines the light on it to help us understand what is unity. It's the exact same word that he used for the first one. It's the same word, except it's the participle. Number one in our list and number four is the same word, but this one's a participle, and it means to be thinking one thing, which is why it's translated in intent, one purpose. You ever heard somebody, this is a, a um, criticism. You know, you're one-track-minded. You just, you're just focused on one thing. That's the idea here. It's not used as a criticism. Every day when you get up, as soon as you open your eyes, you start to think, don't you? I told him in the early service, I can sleep wrong and let my, my arm fall asleep and wake up. I can think one thought. I'm awake. <laughs> and that's it. I'm thinking the rest of the time. What do you think about throughout the day? What's your mind set on? Paul says the one thing that you're thinking all of the time is what you live for. It's the governor of your life. You're intent on that purpose. Paul says here the concentration of the Christian is on God's purpose. You're one-track minded for Him. There's no daylight possible between people who are all focused on a common goal. Divisions can't remain where there's a common yoke, a mutual purpose. It's amazing what a common enemy will, you know, will do. Even, even for people who fight amongst themselves. Two, two brothers will try to kill each other. And you let somebody come against one of those brothers and you watch what the other one does. I mean, it's like a dog fight. You don't mess with my brother. It's a common enemy. We have a common enemy and we also have a common purpose as a church. You must set your mind not on your differences or your own preferences, but on your common purpose, which, which is Christ's work. A believer, after they've died to self, has been raised to a to new life. That life's not their own. It's their master. We now think his thoughts. We walk in his ways. We, we study his words. We, we love what he loves and hate what he, hates what, we hate what he hates. We're about His business, His commission. We live for His glory. And we'll be with Him forever. Paul's already summarized this for us in chapter 1, verse 21. What does it mean to, uh, to, to be intent on one purpose? What's the life look like? Well, he's defined it for us. He says to live as Christ. So I laid the groundwork to explain this verse. Paul's purpose is so... Uh, uh, Intertwined, Christ's purpose is so intertwined with the Christian life that Paul says it just equals Christ. And unity in the church is a whole group of people intent on the same purpose. All your lives, Christ. And you see why that brings harmony. And why there, when there, there are other basis for, for coming together, that it, it mangles it and creates disunity. What's the one thing that you live for? What purpose are you pursuing? Is it Christ? Is it, is it love for other people? You say, well, I'm not sure. How, how do I know? I mean, when I get up, I think a lot about work. Is it wrong to think about work? No. But what is the reason that you're working? What's behind those, those thoughts? 
Paul says what one thing dominates your thinking when you strip it all away. What's the common denominator of your thoughts? What, what's the underpinnings of all of those things? I mean, you all have to go about your life. and What do you think most about? What directs your life? What do you spend most of your energy on? That's the one purpose that is governing your life. And if it's anything other than Christ, it needs to bow the knee to King Jesus. I mean, let's say it this way. If the reason that you come to church is because you like children's ministry or even me, it won't be long, and one of those things will change, and your unity will as well. Paul says those are too small of things to have as your purpose. Lift your eyes higher. It's Christ, not people. It's clarity of the Bible, not style of delivery. It's the gospel, not the way we promote missions. It's the worship of Jesus. The church exists for one reason, for the praise of the glory of His grace. Christ as king is stamped on the the DNA, Paul says, of of unity. If you look at the steel links under the the microscope, you'll see gospel carbon in every molecule of its steel. Do you have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus? Paul says, can you look at his humility, know his mind for you, receive his work, and then not pursue his mind, his love, his spirit, his purpose? And I know you better than that. I've experienced it. You're a good church. You're good people that love the Lord Jesus. You're not perfect. None of us are. But the orientation of your heart and your life is is for Christ and His Word and, and His church. And I am thankful to be part of a church like that. And we're going to celebrate that unity by taking the Lord's, the Lord's Supper together. So I'm going to give you instructions of how we're going to do that in a minute, but before then, I just want you to bow your heads and prepare your hearts. Maybe you're watching and, or you're here this morning and you say, wow, that unity sounds wonderful but I don't even know that I'm in Christ, much less in unified with the church. Well, the Bible will tell you the first thing that you need to do is, is turn from your sin, repentance towards God, and then place your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in Him and in Him alone, what He's done, not your works. God will never be attracted to you or your goodness but he's completely attracted to Christ. And Jesus has laid down his life that you might be able to have new life if you'll repent and and believe. Those of you here that are believers, you do not have to be a member of this church to partake. You just need to be in the kingdom. Father, we come before you and we love you. We thank you for your word. I look around this room and I see familiar faces that I love dearly. There's some that I don't know as well. I thank you for them too. Lord, as we hear a message like this, just next in the rotation, you 
you call us to things here that I find impossible for me to keep. And you confirm that in your word, but, but I long for them. And so, Father, I just I humble myself and ask that you would help me, even as I look back and see how I failed so many times. And I know that's the heart of everyone else. We want to be pleasing to you. We want to have Christ reign in our hearts. Help us to do that. Um, The wonderful thing about the gospel is, Lord, no matter where we've been or, or how long we've been there, we can return to you and be clean. And there is no baggage. Christ nailed all of that to the cross. and We celebrate that even now in this communion. In Jesus' name, amen.